Welcome to the Innovation and Technology Management Seminar Series hosted by the Engineering Management Program in the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. My name is Jeff Glass and I'm the Faculty Director for the Engineering Management Program. The purpose of our seminar series is to introduce engineers and scientists to various business and management concepts that they will find useful throughout their careers. Speakers represent a diverse array of industries from finance and information technology to materials processing and biotechnology. If you'd like to learn more about the Engineering Management Program at Duke, including these podcasts and any associated audiovisual materials that are sometimes available, please visit our website at memp.duke.edu. Thanks for your interest in our series, and please do not hesitate to contact us with suggestions or questions. Our seminar today is by Mr. Robert Price. Mr. Price is the former CEO of Control Data during its heyday of high growth and competing successfully with IBM. It was a time when Control Data introduced technology and HR practices that we take for granted today. Bob is also the author of The Eye for Innovation and has written several key articles on innovation management. Finally, he's been a board member, entrepreneur, and mentor for many startup companies. He'll talk today about innovation strategy and disruptive technologies. We hope you enjoy the seminar. Well, uh, we've already had uh, quite a bit of discussion about what is disruptive technology, but I think that the term, just to start, is, uh, is a bit misleading because the word disruptive is such a common word. Uh, does this just mean something that creates problems or either good or bad? So the terminology uh, we're going to go into in a little bit more depth here to really try to get a fix on what a disruptive technology is and what are the implications in uh, a very, and as we will see, in a very narrow sense. So the word disruptive here means some specific things when it's applied to technology or innovation as opposed to disruption in the classroom or disruption in, in society or the other uses of the word disruption. Uh, <clears throat> we'll start with uh, some examples. The and I don't mean specific examples uh, to begin with, it's either new science or new architecture technology, one of the two. It's either brand new science, something that's just been discovered and it brings about some kind of change or has the potential to bring about some kind of change or it really is a new packaging of old technologies, things that we already know about. So another way to think about architecture is that architecture means a new array of attributes. And basically in disruptive technology, you have some kind of new uh, array of attributes that is appealing to some, to some market. And the example you had in, in your reading with Bauer and Christensen on the disk drive uh, business, the trade-off there in the beginning was the capacity of the drive, number of megabytes it would hold, versus the footprint, that is the size of the device. And the emphasis in the mainstream market was all on more and more and more capacity. So a smaller footprint device that had less capacity was initially of no interest. 
uh, <clears throat> flash chips, which are ubiquitous now with us because of their, uh, they are not volatile as are other forms of magnetic, magnetic memory. So the, but in the beginning they were very expensive. So flash chips appeal to a market segment that was interested in non-volatile storage of data and the cost wasn't such a big factor. And as uh, time went by, of course, it changed and moved into more into the mainstream uh, market, uh, marketplace. This, and in transistor radios, the attribute that was important was portability. And the fidelity of the early transistor radios was really lousy. I mean, uh, you couldn't care too much about having high fidelity music and then buy a transistor radio. So it was the segment of the market that wanted to carry it with them where it first came in. Of course, that changed, and then uh, transistor radios came into the, to the mainstream of the marketplace. So <clears throat> disruptive technologies normally start with some, some specialized market segment that appreciates a particular new attribute, the size as in the disk drive, the portability as in the transistor radio, and so on. Now, bear in mind that uh, although the example that was used in the uh, Bauer Christensen article was disk drives, and so it was a, a, a lower cost market, if you will, the, it's not always, in, in terms of a disruptive technology, you aren't always moving down market, if you will, or out market, you may well be using up market to a very specialized niche that appreciates extremely high performance even though it's more costly. <clears throat> so the, so what? Maybe all technology, all new technology, all new know-how in some sense is disruptive. That is to say, it either introduces new features or it introduces new uh, new attributes of, of, of a product. But the reason, the reason, as we've seen in our readings, the reason that it matters is that even if this new uh, device or service that's incorporating new know-how, it's out here in left field someplace, or right field, I guess that is, uh, <coughs> the... The fact is that as the technology continues to improve and mature, it's going to come into the mainstream. And if your market is the mainstream, you better worry. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's talk about some examples. And the first one I'm going to use is the second one up there is the mini computer story. <clears throat> the Probably a lot of you don't even remember what a mini computer is, but nevertheless, it was uh, uh, and, and it, it was the first, if you will, downsizing the first different array of computing of a computing system that allowed it to not occupy uh, a special room, <laughs> air conditioned, and all the rest of it. So it was uh, it addressed a different market than the mainframe computer market. And how did it gain a foothold? It gained a foothold very simply 
because the procurement process could be done at the departmental level. And you will uh, learn as you move through business that the delegation of authority is a, <laughs> is a major factor in a lot of decisions. So uh, the ability for a department head to order a computer for just their group made, uh, made a tremendous difference without having to go up through the whole corporate hierarchy. So in, especially in small engineering groups, to begin with, uh, they could get a computer just for their room, if you will, or their group of people. So the feature, the feature of the mini computer was not that it was more powerful or, or uh, cost per megabyte or anything else cheaper than a mainframe computer. It was that it's, it was less capital intensive and so could be ordered by people with, at a lower delegation of authority. So the term department level computers was also used in that. Net, I should, having brought up many computers, I should uh, talk about mainframes because the, 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 believe it or not, in both the mini computer and later the PC, the, uh, conventional wisdom, the common wisdom out there was that the mainframe computer was a dinosaur and that it would be replaced by personal computers, would be replaced first of all by mini computers and later by the uh, same thing was said of personal computers. And it turned out that the mainframe computer was not a dinosaur at all, it just changed its name. And today we call it a server. So, uh, but the growth rate in the mainstream market in the, for mainframe computers definitely <coughs> slowed because fewer people were, I mean, more people were using mini computers and later more people were using, were using PCs. And so the demands for central computing were not as great. All that changed. All that changed with one new innovation. And that was the internet. So all of a sudden the server, all of a sudden, Google has the biggest mainframe installation in the world. So the ability to provide services over the internet from centralized computers changed the game back to where it was in the beginning. Uh, the disk drive story, the uh, is what the paper, the Bauer and Christensen paper is about. And it's a fairly uh, straightforward explanation in that the disk drive by some of the startup companies was reconfigured and even though it didn't offer the number of megabytes that the big eight inch drives or even the five and a quarter inch drives did, the three and a half inch, which was the first epiphany of, uh, of the small micro uh, uh, data storage systems, it, it was appealing to markets in which the size, the pure size of the disk drive was more important than its capacity. So the trade-off of capacity versus footprint. And the, the, 
the disk drive, that disk drive story is kind of a classic example, and that's why Bauer and Christensen use it. It's kind of a classic example of what we mean by disruptive technology. It doesn't have the attributes of the mainstream market, that is, large capacity and uh, high-speed access that customers were demanding. So as Seagate listened to their customers, they said, we don't want that. But the smaller companies, the startup companies, went to a new market niche. They sold their uh, small disk drives, the three-and-a-half-inch disk drives, to, the, to these new markets, which didn't seem to be important to the main competitors. And ultimately, of course, the technology improved and the trajectory of the improvement was such that it came back and then it did impinge uh, in fact, in fact, replaced the uh, the the main the mainstream market. the The problem with that is what kind of inference do you draw from that? I'm I'm sure you all read the Bauer and Christensen article on the disk drive story, and what was your impression at the end of reading that article? What did you think specifically about Seagate versus Connor? or quantum, or the other small drive makers. What was, what was the moral of the story for you? Um, just listening to your existing customers is not enough. Yeah. And you need to um, look at other customers who will become mainstream in the future. Okay. That, 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 that's, that's absolutely true. And uh, so who's winning the game? Seagate, or Connor, or quantum, or... Who's, 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 who's going to win as this technology comes in back into the mainstream? You don't think any of them are going to win? So, somebody did win. Somebody did win. I'm sorry? Why? <laughs> yeah, it, my only point in bringing this up is, is that a disruptive technology and being fast on your feet and moving into a new market does not guarantee long-term success. Because what actually happened was that by 1995, and this article was written in 1990, <laughs> in 1994, its publication date was 1995. A year later, Connor was acquired by Seagate. In 2001, Quantum was acquired by Maxtor, another company. And in, in 2005, Maxtor was acquired by Seagate. So the, there are other factors in uh, looking at strategy and looking at plotting your long-term success than just whether you have a winning disruptive technology or not. And so you have to keep that in mind that strategy may start, you may get your start with a disruptive technology, but you've got to have something more than that in order to have a sustained success. And I give you another example of a disruptive technology, my favorite one, of course, is supercomputers. 
and supercomputers were uh, were not mainstream computers. In fact, when uh, uh, Bill Norris and the company had just started, we visited IBM, and uh, Bill was talking to Jim Birkenstock, and uh, Birkenstock made a big mistake because he called him Billy. He said, well, Billy, what... Uh, what are you guys going to do? And he said, well, we're going to make computers, very fast computers for the scientific, for the top-end scientific market. And Birkenstock said to him, well, good luck to you. I believe that market is probably worth uh, two or three computers a year. And, of course, he was wrong because you go into the high end of the market and the technology then becomes more and more available to the middle of the market and so forth and so on. But the, a disruptive technology may be at the high end or it may be at the low end or it may be at an out end, <laughs> Nothing, something, something brand new. But the question is, it's going to, the technology involved, the know-how that's involved in that is going to mature, change, and, and, and improve. Uh, and then there's a completely different story. And... Uh, I was interested in the, in the examples that were, that were given, and I think we, uh, we, we, we got some pretty good examples up here. Uh, one I liked uh, particularly, well, electricity. Uh, and I'm not sure what was meant by electricity, because electricity was invented with the invention of the earth, but... Uh, but I, I assume it meant uh, uh, electricity available to human beings for use as an energy source. The <clears throat> but the point that I, uh, that, that I want to make now is that it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking of technology as being incorporated in products whereas actually know-how is just as important and novel know-how, disruptive know-how, is just as important in services as it is in products. And I think our literature, including the Bauer and Christensen article, mislead us to, uh, to some degree because all the examples that we think of are in terms of artifacts, whereas most of our life is concerned with services of one kind or another. So the story then that I like to, to uh, remember, to remind myself, is the one of Pilkington. I think I may have mentioned that last week. The Pilkington Glass Company was a UK company. And it's a, it's a fascinating story because this guy, Alastair Pilkington, um, spent seven years inventing a new process for making plate glass. And the only reason, the only reason he got by with spending seven years at it was because his family owned the company, owned the, or, or the, were the major owners of the company anyway. So he was tolerated, and he was left to play in his laboratory until he came up with this process of taking molten glass and floating it on a, a uh, bed of molten tin, which instantly gave you a totally smooth surface, surface. So it revised not only the process 
you still got plate glass. You got a better quality plate glass, but you still got plate glass. But it radically changed the whole process that they uh, that they had to employ. In in fact, over some time, they had to throw away all the manufacturing establishment that they had in order to make it out of plate glass. But it was so superior, it was so superior, and the quality was so much better that actually they just went from a uh, leading UK company to the international leader in plate glass. So it transformed that company from a local company into a global company, if you will, and it transformed the industry because ultimately everybody, uh, everybody had to follow suit in order to, to compete. Now, that's a, that's a different story and uh, Jeff might argue with me whether that's even a disruptive technology or not because they didn't go after a niche market. They didn't go either upstream or downstream. They went after the market that they were already serving. They just were doing it with a totally new, innovative, <laughs> innovative product. So does it qualify as being disruptive? Uh, well, it sure as hell caused a lot of disruption <laughs> in the industry, but in, in the narrow sense that uh, the articles that we had today and in the narrow sense that we've been talking about, it was not a disruptive technology in that it went to an outlier market and then worked its way back into, in, in, into the mainstream market. It just took on the mainstream market head on. So that's, a, that's an important distinction, but it also is important to realize, I think, that process innovation can be as radical and make for radical change uh, as, as, as any new, new artifact, any new product. So the story, the moral of my story, is beware of recipes <laughs> because recipes probably are based uh, on, they all have assumptions in them. Uh, recipe may call for butter or it may call for margarine uh, but there are assumptions about the, the characteristics of those ingredients that matter. And when you have recipes for, for innovation, and particularly for disruptive innovation, in the back of the mind of the person who is writing the recipe, they have some example, the disk drive, for example, or, uh, to use my example, the, the, uh, the, the mini computer or the PCs or the mainframes. So... I think it's very important for you in looking at technology and looking at know-how and looking at its effect to always go back to the basics. And then you won't get misled quite as easily as to uh, whether it doesn't matter. You know, I, sh I don't have to worry about this. And the basics are really, really very simple. First of all, there are extremes of new know-how, new technology, from ho-hum to wow. But it is a continuum. And it's very difficult to say that technology A is going to be disruptive and technology B is going to be sustaining. And maybe 
it doesn't matter too much whether they are disruptive or sustaining if you do the evaluation of how the technology, how that know-how is going to fit into the world. And so what you have to do is to look to evaluate that technology with regard to potential markets, and that's certainly true in this disk drive case, and it certainly was true in the, in, in the Kitty Hawk case that you looked at. What was the market for the drive that they wanted? We'll talk a little bit more about that. You have to look at that technology with regard to its effect on internal processes, and you have to look at it. Does this mean I can have a new product, or is it not have anything to do with having new products? It's just a process or a service that it will, that it will affect. So the basics are straightforward. Understand the technology and then evaluate it versus market, process, and product. It's not that easy. And, whoops. Ah. The reason the evaluation is not that easy is that we are subject to what could be thought of as tyrannies. And there are <clears throat> six of them. Business models, served markets, organization routines, current strategy, required growth levels, and language. All those things, we operate not independently, we operate within some context. And all these things, in, especially in large companies, will affect how we think, how we evaluate. It will influence our evaluation when we look at, at the technology versus market process and, and product. So let's look at these one by one. <clears throat> the tyranny of organization routines. And this is how we get things done around here. And also the thing that we talked about last week, and I'm not going to dwell on this because we talked a good bit about it, is decision-making that emphasizes failure avoidance. So fear of failure, removing that is is, a, is a, a great barrier to being to, able to really evaluate the impact of a new technology. And overemphasis on leveraging existing complementary, that's a, that's a fancy phrase. All it means is that we've got this big factory, we've got to use this factory, we can't afford to throw it away. So what do you mean you want to make plate glass in a brand new way that says I've got to destroy 100 years worth of in, investment in, uh, in grinding machines? So... Uh, and exist, expense ratios and so forth and so on. The, the uh, oh, well, one on the last one, existing norms. One of the things in the Kitty Hawk case, if you recall, was they, had the, they wanted to beat the corporate norm of break-even within 36 months, BET, the break-even time. They wanted it to be less than 36 months because that was the, quote, the standard within the company. Would they have made a different decision if they had not had a break-even time of 36 months? Uh, suppose it had been 60 months. Well, we don't know the answer to that, whether they would have or not, but certainly it influenced the fact that they decided, it influenced the fact, it wasn't the, but in, that they decided they'd look at the PDA market rather than the games market because they knew they couldn't get to break even in a games market within 36 months. So the tyranny of 
existing norms, or this is how we do things. <clears throat> and the, the business model, and, and this is, uh, go into this at great length in the, uh, in the Bauer Christensen article on disk drives and the fact that the, the tyranny, this tyranny could be put another way. It's not so much the established business model as it is our established market, our established customers. And you recall, they say that the, the, all good companies listen to their customers. But listening to your customers too closely can cause you not to, to uh, uh, take enough account of the fact that a new market niche may give you uh, a head start on something. And the strategy, we're not in that business mindset. Ultimately, of course, this is, this is what uh, Hewlett Packard got into. They really weren't in the disk drive business. Uh, and, and to contrast, Seagate was in the disk drive. They didn't have anything else to do. Now, they may have missed the market, but ultimately they had to go back and catch up. And the way they did that was to buy, <laughs> to buy their competitor. But uh, in, in Hewlett-Packard, they decided they would sell printers instead, which was probably a good decision. <clears throat> Tyranny of curtains. Is, is this a problem for General Motors today? Is that a problem in looking at disruptive technologies like hybrid or uh, hydrogen or small cars or it is, isn't it? It's a big problem for them because they have a huge investment and their business strategy for the last several years has all been built around SUVs to oversimplify. So <clears throat> can they overcome that? Well, maybe they can, but the the thing I'm trying to say is as they evaluate new technologies, they are doing it within the context of their current strategy. <clears throat> so the tyranny of required growth levels, uh, and, and this also comes out in the, in, in the Kitty Hawk case that you had, and also in the, in the disk drive case. Uh, you have... Uh, Big mainstream requires big new stream, so a little new stream is uninteresting, and so forth and so on, and it feeds, it feeds on itself. <coughs> the tyranny of language. <laughs> there's the innovator, and there's the guy with the numbers. And they, it's not just that the numbers are more important or the innovation is more important, it is when... when there is discussion within the organization about what to do. How do we evaluate? Should we go into this small disk drive market or not? Then one guy is always thinking, well, I got to get, you know, $100 million of new revenue just to make any kind of impact next. And the innovator is saying, well, this is going to produce a million dollars next year and $10 million in five years. So the it's a difficulty in communicating between all the people who go into making up a decision. In any event, those are the things that we struggle with in evaluating technology and particularly disruptive technologies. 
with regard to what is it we're going to do. However you do that, whatever the result is, and whether you do it well or poorly or not at all, will determine ultimately what the strategy is. And in particular, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Just the fact that the technology exists, nothing happens until you develop an innovation strategy. So, I'm going to uh, uh, move to the second part of this now because technology is know-how. Technology know-how doesn't become reality until you do an innovation. You match the know-how to a need, a problem, or, uh, a product, a service, and you come up with an idea for doing that. It's still not reality. It's not reality until people are buying it. People are paying for it. And that's what strategy is all about. Strategy is a journey towards that magic moment <laughs> when people are paying, paying you for your innovation. Uh, so <clears throat> I have a favorite story about what is strategy? And there are lots of definitions of strategy. And I think I, in the book I present uh, some, of those, um, some of those definitions. Uh, the, but my favorite story is uh, about strategy is this. And I was on a board at one point, and it was, uh, it was a good board. And it was one of those in which... We always had dinner the night before the board meeting, and we didn't just eat and drink. We had some special presentation, and the CEO of the company made sure that we got a better understanding of something that was of what was going on in the industry because we always had presentations or discussions or whatever uh, at our evening before uh, dinner. And I just never will forget one of them. Uh, and two men from the company were talking. They were basically doing a competitive analysis. They were telling what the competitors were doing in the industry and what it might mean to us. And it, <laughs> they were enthusiastic, and as they got into their presentation, they got more and more worked up. And finally, one of them looked at the other one and said, those bastards are just trying to monopolize this industry. And... We all kind of giggled, but my, one of my fellow directors leaned over to me and he said, hell, Bob, that's all any of us want. It's just, just a little monopoly, not a big one, just a little one. And, and so strategy is the quest, if you will, for just, just a little monopoly. And uh, so don't forget that. But strategy uh, is, is also, it's not... It's not a document. It's not uh, a process that you think through something, you record it, and then you go off and execute it. Strategy is a continuous journey. It's a step-by-step -step journey. Uh, and the question is, uh, what direction? Am I going to go this way? Or am I going to go this way? And depending upon what kind of choices you make as to the direction, you may go around in a circle. You may end up in a swamp you may come up against a disruptive technology 
that gives you an opportunity or is a threat. So the direction, what direction do I go? Uh, and then the second question is, okay, it's a journey and I have to take a step at a t- how, do, how do I do that? Uh, am I going to go fast? Am I going to go slow? And uh, am I going to ride a bike or walk or whatever? So the questions then are, what direction do I take and how am I going to do it? And in the book, which you've all read, I introduced this metaphor of strategic space to talk about the direction of strategy. Where, where are we going? We're searching in this space for our little monopoly, the place where we have something that other, we can solve a problem, we can meet a need better than anybody else, and people are willing to pay us for that. And so we journey, and the directions we take are determined by markets, products, and processes. And it's usually the next step we take is some vector that is a combination of market, product, and process. So in the, uh, in the Kitty Hawk case, for example, the strategic journey, it started out to f- seek its niche, and the steps were primarily in the beginning along the product, product dimension, the features of the product, and those were determined by the market, the PDA market, that they were after. So strategy is a function of where we're going after what market and what are the processes by which we do that and what are the products with which we're doing it. So as we, as I say, as we, as we continue our journey, uphill, downhill, around, in circles, whatever, the thing that we're seeking is this competitive advantage, our little monopoly, and unfortunately, it's not just a matter of going in a direction or not, because there are forces that we encounter <coughs> that influence whether, whether our step is going to succeed or not. And I'm not going to go into all these uh, today, because you've You've had all this, you read all this stuff in the book anyway. Demographic change, economic change, change in social norms, government actions. Uh, and we had one in the, in the thing, government action. I was reminded of that in the, in the, in the presentation. And it was a voiceover in Skype. It was in Skype, right? The, and some governments just uh, abs- absolutely prohibit the use of, uh, of, of voiceover internet protocols. But technological change, and that's what we want to talk about in the class today. That's what the class today is about, is technological change, particularly about disruptive technological change. And I want to, uh, so that's what we're going to, 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 to concentrate on. And I will show you this next, we can talk about it here a little bit uh, more easily. This uh, graph is also from the book, and this is the global forces that affect competition. And there are the, there are the main ones around the, ed- the edge there that I talked about. Government policy and action, technology, changing social values, economic and demographic changes. Those are the, those are the forces that cause change to occur. 
uh, technology may produce substitutes. It may increase the competitive rivalry from existing firms. Uh, there's the power of the buyers, the power of suppliers, the ease of entry and exit. Uh, once we get into something, it may be very difficult to exit. So the, but we're not going to talk about all, each one of, any one of those things is worth uh, easily a lecture as long as the one today. But we're really only going to talk about technology, the one at the top. So we want to talk about technology change. And as, as, as I said at the very beginning, the technological change is, is from almost imperceptible, very incremental, to, if you will, disruptive or radical. And so it's a continuum, it's a spectrum. And the one that we're concentrating on today Incremental, of course, we can, we can adjust our strategy in small steps. And if it's disruptive, we may have to reverse directions and go in a totally different direction in order to capture the new market. So I want to, and, and we already started talking about this, and I thought the, the exercise that the team did was good because disruptive technology any know-how, but disruptive know-how only has potential. It only has potential. It has to be applied. It has to be used. It has to be applied uh, in fashioning an innovation of some kind or other. And if that innovation radically changes the business model we have, then you have Radical innovation, and I want to I, I want to pause here uh, for a moment, and 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 Jeff and I talked about this a little bit, and I may ask him to come in here. I think the terminology that we impose on you uh, in this whole technology area is um, makes life more difficult, not less difficult, because one thing. And, and, and Jeff assures me that we've crossed this bridge, is that technology, you have to start with technology is know-how. And it's know-how that goes into all the things that we do. It's not just some product. It can be a service. It can be whatever. But technology is know-how. And the and innovation is applying know-how. It can be new know-how can be very, very old know-how. I told you the story about the player piano last, uh, last time. Uh, and in fact, most of the things that we talk about in the, in the class, even the ones that were up here, most of the know-how that's in those innovations that were there uh, was old stuff, not new stuff. Uh, some of it is new science. Every once in a while there, are really, there is really something new. But mostly we rearrange old things, but we come up with solutions, innovations, to uh, meet opportunities, to, to overcome obstacles or whatever. So the term disruptive technology, we say, 
a disruptive technology must be incorporated in a radical innovation. Well, somehow or other, that bothers my sense of proper use of English language. Shouldn't it be disruptive technologies and disruptive innovations? Or radical technologies and radical innovation? I mean, some, there's some lack of consistency there, but we are talking about, always remember, we're talking about know-how. Based on know-how, we are able to innovate and if it is really a dramatic innovation aimed at a new market, and it can be a higher-end market, a lower-end market, an outlier market, <clears throat> it's aimed at a market and it does not become reality until our strategy that we, with which we pursue that innovation, until our strategy proves that people are willing to buy it. So... Technology, know-how. Innovation, solve the problem of how to meet a need better in a new, novel way. <clears throat> Strategy, figuring out how to make economic reality, let me use that shorthand, economic reality out of my innovation. And that leads to success. So uh, the... Uh, there... Let me talk about the Kitty Hawk for just a second. What was the Kitty Hawk? Uh, what was the disruptive technology in Kitty Hawk? Anybody? I'm sorry. It was okay. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's, uh, and can you can you say that maybe more generically? I'm sorry? Form factor. Form factor. That's very good. Yes. Uh, rugged. Also. Rugged. Rugged. Okay. So if we try to put all those things together, the form, form factor, the ruggedness and so forth, it was the architecture, or use a different word, design. Uh, but architecture I like because it encompasses all these things. So the, the innovation... The innovation in the Kitty Hawk was not new recording technology necessarily. There may have been some new. It wasn't even necessarily the heads, the, the reading or recording heads. It was the way they packaged it. And part of it was that they had to make it manufacturable at as low a cost as possible. So it was, it was the architecture that was the innovation in... In, in Kitty Hawk, and I would say offhand, it qualified certainly as a radical innovation. Uh, and the, uh, let's see, what do we have next here? Ah, yes, okay. And at this point, I think it would be good to pause for a moment and Think about what, as I said, there's a continuum in terms of innovations, disruptive or radical or whatever terminology we want to put on it. And, but they go from sustaining to our word disruptive. And uh, so here are some ways to, to think about those. Uh, sustaining technologies maintain a trajectory of performance improvement. 
Now, the thing kind of that we were looking at in the, in, in the slide that Jeff wanted to go back to. And disruptive technologies leading to disruptive innovation, and that innovation maybe should be down uh, below, introduce a very different set of attributes to the marketplace from those that the mainstream customer base has historically valued. And radical or disruptive innovation has unprecedented performance features or something that creates a dramatic change in processes, products, or services that they transform existing markets or create new ones. And, and that certainly is what happened in the, uh, in, in the disk drive business. And the, how would you, from reading the article, how would you describe, was Seagate unaware of the three and a half inch disk drive form factor architecture? Did they just not know it was going on? They had their own three and a half, didn't they? So what was their strategy? <laughs> so they were aware of this disruptive uh, know-how, this disruptive innovation called a three and a half inch drive. So what was their strategy for dealing with that? They made a strategic decision, right? How would you how would you describe the strategy? Use the older drives for higher capacity. Do I'm sorry? Use the older drives and focus on higher capacity and performance. And and why why did they do that? Because that's what their existing customers were asking for. And that's where they could make the most money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But with regard to the three and a half inch innovation, the three and a half inch disruptive technology innovation. Uh, what was, they made a, they also, either they made a conscious or an unconscious decision, but they made a decision with regard to that particular disruptive innovation. And what was their strategy? What did they do? They left it on the shelf and they left. Was, okay, absolutely. Give them a tennis ball. <laughs> Their strategy was very simply wait and see. Here it is. We know how to do it. Let's see what happens. And that, of course, is what a lot of market leaders, that's what a lot of market leaders really do. It's not that they're unaware of the disruptive innovation or the disruptive technology. They are aware of it. But for one reason or another, they say, well, let's, let's let the other people experiment with this and we'll just wait and see what happens to it. On the other hand, what was Connor peripheral strategy with regard to this disruptive innovation, radical innovation, the three and a half inch drive? Oh, come on. Go for it, right? Yeah. One was wait and see. The other was, man, let's go for it. Well, why did they come to those decisions? I won't torture you anymore. <laughs> Connor, Connor didn't have any choice but to go for it. I mean, that's what they had. They didn't have anything else. 
And Seagate had other choices. So let's play it safe, if you will. So whether it was safe or not is, uh, you know, is a matter of judgment. Okay. Seagate won in the long run, and they won because they made so much money selling their five and a, five and a quarter inch uh, drives and their eight inch drives that uh, this had all that money, and they, they moved their manufacturing very early on to, not to Singapore, but to Thailand? Yeah, I think. Singapore, Thailand, someplace. And uh, they really... They, they really pursued, which, which was good strategy, because they correctly perceived that in a commodity market, you better be the low-cost producer. So their whole strategy was geared around becoming a low-cost producer, which they did, and they made enough money that they ended up buying everybody. Interestingly enough, all their competitors at the time of this story, the three and a half, the Connor, the Quantum, the Mac stores, uh, they bought them all. The one that existed at the time, and I don't know if any of you have even heard of it or not, but it existed at the time, and it is the fourth largest disk drive maker today, and that's a company called Western Digital. And they did survive. Now, they had some other irons in the fire, uh, they had, and they had some tough times, but I I'm pretty sure they are the fourth largest disk drive manu manufacturer. Pardon me? I think they moved up. They did move up? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yes, right. Anyway, uh, so that was the way the story ended, okay? <clears throat> Let me move on here for a minute. So radical innovation, or my new terminology, disruptive innovation. <laughs> what is it? It's, uh, it's a whole new ball game. And we've, we've talked about that through the class, and I'm not going to belabor that. But I want to, to emphasize this next point. A radical innovation, a disruptive innovation, may involve, may involve radically new, disruptively new technology, but not necessarily. And I believe that uh, we have, you had an example in your readings. I think that Jeff uh, posted the small print jobs for peanuts. Uh, that's, that's a pretty disruptive <laughs> uh, or radical innovation, and it is an innovation of how to make small jobs more affordable to small businesses or how to make printing jobs, custom printing jobs, more affordable to small businesses. And if you read through this, uh, and, and I tried to read it fairly carefully, it's not clear that there's any breakthrough uh, know-how or breakthrough technology in this. It says, uh, Vista prints prime uh, uh, online tools help clinch the deal. So one thing would be the, the online tools they provide the customer, but the, another one that they mentioned in here is that they're able to take all these little jobs and, ba and batch them into one big job so that the printing press can run multiple jobs at one time, and then they cut them apart and 
and, and, and so forth. So, but here's an example uh, of a radical innovation, and it really doesn't involve any new technology at all. There's a more classic example even than this, although we wouldn't think of it that way today, but one of the classic uh, disruptive radical innovations was FedEx. How to deliver a letter overnight. And it changed the whole ball game. And, uh, and then of course, they, over the years after great success, they have many competitors, even the United States Post Office <laughs> is, is, uh, came into the game a few years back. But that truly was a disruptive innovation. But were airplanes new? Did they get a new model airplane? Of course not. Uh, what? When did they do that? When did, they, when did FedEx start? FedEx started in about 19... It was before 1980, I think. So about 25 years ago. I'm sorry? It was in the 70s. It was in the 70s, yeah, okay. And uh, what, was, what was new was the architecture, just like the architecture of the three and a half inch drive was different. The architecture of the system was what gave it its competitive advantage. And it was the process that uh, process innovation that FedEx introduced. So, what is it? It's a whole new ball game. <clears throat> and maybe, maybe, if you're lucky, you also have some brand new, radically new technology to back it up. Right? And here are some, we've talked about all kinds of examples today. Maybe we're sick of examples. But, but here are some, and maybe this is the point, Jeff, where we could even bring in the, the things that we left but I, 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 for purposes of discussion, I gave four examples here, the internet, biofuels, hybrid vehicles, and hydrogen vehicles as potentially, uh, or in fact, either way, uh, disruptive technologies and innovations. Okay, now I'm gonna stop and talk about the technology food chain, which you've all studied and you've worked on, so I don't have to I don't have to do big stuff here, but I want to emphasize uh, some points. This is more of a review for you than anything. Uh, the first thing that I want to make sure that we understand, and I find this is the most common misunderstanding because in business and certainly in terms of uh, academic uh, business teaching, there are two things, two other chains that are in common use. One is called the supply chain, and supply chain management is a whole discipline in itself. This, is, this has nothing to do, this is not a supply chain. The supply chain gives you the array of uh, upstream and downstream entities from where you are that either feed stuff to you or to whom you feed things. Uh, and it's, neither is it a value chain, and a value chain, you probably haven't been exposed to that, but a value chain is a, uh, used by consulting companies to uh, depict what the value added is within an enterprise. In other words, it's a chain, 
that shows what kind of inputs come into the company, what kind of operations, manufacturing, marketing, whatever. What is our value added to that? And then what is the output of our chain? So those two things are similar in the way that they, they refer to a, a um, they involve technologies, if you will, but the technology food chain is, is not that. It shows how technology, and here it says know-how, engineering knowledge, manufacturing process knowledge, various kinds of know-how are added to preceding artifacts to produce new artifacts. And it same, same kind of thing uh, as, as we move along here. The, <clears throat> so in this example, uh, the, the example that I use, not surprisingly, is the computer and information services industry. But <clears throat> the other common misunderstanding is, is that if you start out, and let's say that I'm a uh, manufacturer of semiconductor devices, that doesn't mean that oh, this food chain does not mean that over time that I will move along through these various stages of value added. And I, I, was, I was really surprised because, <clears throat> maybe I'm oversensitive to this, but I was at the winter conference of the organization sciences group in February. And this one professor uh, really took me to task and I, I had a heart, he said he didn't believe that this was valid. And uh, I had a hard time understanding what he was talking about. But what he, what he had, had interpreted, and he had read the book. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't write that very well. Because he had interpreted this to mean that every company starts someplace. Why, why can't I keep that thing up there? There it is. There, all right, there you go. That every company starts down here someplace and moves along step by step as it matures along these stages. And, and that, of course, is just not true. You can, you can operate anywhere. For example, we talked about disk drives. Let's see if I can talk about disk drives. Right here, information storage devices. Seagate, although they made a couple of abortive attempts, they never have moved off this position in the technology food chain. And they don't have to. They're very good at it. So this isn't something that says to the right is better than to the left. And in fact, pharma companies are a really special case because they operate really more down here. A lot of it is basic science, but a lot of it is just molecular engineering. And they jump all the way from here over to the very end of the thing. So the, the, the point is that you have to know where you are and what is your source of competitive advantage. What is your value added? What is your, where am I going to concentrate my value added? And for most of us, we are dependent upon the output. We're dependent upon the output of people who make devices, who make systems, uh, and then we apply our value added to that. So 
the the let me let me just give you some examples. What kinds of technologies and what kinds of people are involved in these things? Let's let's, let's start down here. Uh, what kind of disruptive what kind of disruptive technology, what kind of disruptive know-how could enter into the food chain at this point that would affect everybody from there on up? What are all our computing and information devices made of today? What are transistors made of? Silicon, right? So let's say that there was a new science, let's say optical, photons instead of electrons. That would change the way people operate. That would really truly be disruptive in both sense of the terms because it would, it would change many of you would make new services possible, new systems, new kinds of systems, new applications, and it certainly would change all those things. Uh, and I already mentioned here a, 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 a technology uh, one technology here are storage devices. Disk drives is an example of that. And coming up with a three and a half inch disk drive or two and a half or a one point, what was the Kitty Hawk 1.3? 1.3 is going to be, it's going to change the way people think about things. Uh, now, let's see, let me ask you another question. What can you think about who is a big supplier in this area here. That is a system that involves uh, software. You could think of it as application or system software, either one. But in the software area, what is the biggest technological change that we've had? I'm sorry? Software and service. Okay, but I think of a company. I'm sorry? Microsoft. Microsoft. That's good. Anybody else? Google. 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 Right. Google is absolutely, and, and Microsoft. I mean, those are two huge uh, disruptive technologies. And they both started off in niches, as we've already talked about, and they really are truly mainstream. Jeff was looking at his Google page earlier today and he said I know they had all that stuff <laughs> anyway uh, and up here when you get more towards user specific kinds of knowledge adding and services up here this of course is a huge area uh, Amazon is, a, is, is an example up here uh, and they have software that makes available a certain kind of marketplace. And also, for that matter, up here at the, very, at the services end, the whole retail uh, industry and the disruptive technology that came into the retail industry, as we talked about earlier, was internet or e-commerce kinds of things. And so their knowledge and the way these serv retail services are delivered changed once the internet uh, came. And, and that just, uh, I, have to, I have to emphasize this point. 
what is the have you thought about what is the essential feature of uh, retailing on the internet that's different from retailing in bricks and mortar? I'm sorry. Uh, that 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 certainly is one. How how do you, how do you attract customers in those two in those two instances? I'm sorry. Low price. Oh uh, well, yes, you do attract low through low price. And delivery to your house. Uh, convenience. Convenience. Right. Uh, it, it, yes, it, all, all all those things are features that make that make a difference. And uh, but there's another thing that also is important, and, and you shouldn't forget this because some of you will be going into it. Do you, uh, and you probably haven't had marketing courses, have you? <laughs> Do you know what direct marketing is? That's where the manufacturer sells directly to the consumer, doesn't go through an intermediary. All e-commerce, all internet-based retailing is direct from the manufacturer to the consumer. So it is by definition direct marketing. And that is something that Barnes & Noble had a hard time dealing with, that all the retailers in the world have had a hard time. It took, them, it took them most of the late 90s to even come anywhere close to this. And they, there were all kinds of articles about how retailers should go out of business, uh, bricks versus clicks, all those kinds of things. So the, uh, the ability to understand, most manufacturers worked with distributors, wholesalers, intermediaries. They did do advertising for the consumer, but they weren't selling they were advertising, they weren't selling to the consumer. And the selling process took place in a shop of some kind or other and depended on intermediaries and their ability to do it well. And how, how, how grocers arrange things on the shelves, uh, the buyers for the uh, clothing stores, how they arrange things in the shops, all those things were the techniques that were useful in getting customers to buy. Uh, but on the Internet, the... Manufacturer is selling directly to <clears throat> to the consumer, and we talked last week about uh, innovation. And one of the great marketing innovations was Dell, and that was direct selling, and it was using first of all telephone, and then later the internet. So, holy cow! Okay, well, you're 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 very lucky because now I'm not going to talk to you about necessary and sufficient technologies. <laughs> but let me, and I will wrap up. <clears throat> and these are the things I really want you to, to take away. First of all, if you're, and these are not necessarily in order. If I did start it with an order, I would say it's the it's the third one, an innovative culture is a, is a must. And that's why I started these two lectures with that yesterday. That's what you've got to have to be able to deal 
with disruptive technologies or anything for that matter. And there's no magic organizational approach to that. But one thing that is important is, and I think you had a paper on this, is that internal R&D is, is very important, not because you're going to discover all the new technologies and all the things there, but it will give you the ability to appreciate what is going on around you. And if you're not doing that, then, it, then it'll all be meaningless to you. And process innovation, I've emphasized this, is as important as product innovation. And we did not have a chance to talk about it very much, but uh, I think you also had some, you had a paper uh, uh, on open innovation. And this is a whole new world in innovation and a subject of a lot of specialized studies now. Some people call it uh, the democratization of innovation. And all it really means is you make more and more use of innovations by your customers, by your suppliers, by people outside the company. In other words, you open your doors to innovation outside the company. And there's one very easy way to remember that is one of the greatest selling drinks of all time is Gatorade. And Gatorade was an open innovation. It came out of the University of Florida from the football coach, as a matter of fact, and was adopted, first of all, by Quaker Oats, of all people, who made a huge success of it. And, uh, and, 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 and today, you know, it is a, just a huge success. And that was not invented in a laboratory or even by a soft drink manufacturer. So, just to wrap it all up, <clears throat> it all starts, again, everything I've talked about, it all starts with technology with know-how. And based on that know-how, you can creatively solve problems or grasp opportunities. That's what we call innovation. Those technologies may be dramatic. That's what we've talked about a good bit today. Those innovations may be radical. Uh, we've talked about that. Or they may be mundane. But that's the, that's the process. This pyramid of success is built, first of all, on a good foundation of technology, know-how. From that, we innovate, and once we're able to innovate, then you can devise a strategy, a plan, a journey through market process and product, a journey to make economic reality to get people to buy what it is you've innovated. And that's what it's all about. I got know-how. I solve the problem. I want somebody to buy it. I figure out how to do that. If I do, I'm a success. Thank you very much.